Good morning. Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. We're grateful that you're with us this morning. We're especially grateful that the Lord brought our missions team back from India, safe and sound. We're very grateful for that. We can, we can clap for that. That's a good thing. <laughs> We're glad to have most, if not all, the team that left here from here. Yeah, I think, I think they're pretty much all here. So it's nice to see them and nice to know that God is faithful. Amen? Let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we, we don't take it for granted that your promises are not only true, but trustworthy. That is, we can put our trust in you, knowing that you are always faithful. Lord, at times in this world, we're challenged with things that would suggest otherwise. That somehow, either you're not there, or if you are there, you don't care. Or that you don't care enough about us to get involved in our lives. And we know what your word tells us. You so loved us that you sent your own son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. You demonstrated your own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. May we never doubt your great love for us. And may we celebrate that love and receive from that love this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I just want to say this. I just want to say that uh, I've noticed some of you, you received that exhortation I gave within the last week or two about trying to be on time, not trying, actually being on time. And I want to say that I've noticed, I'm not going to mention names, although I have a list right here in my Bible. Um, no, no, I don't. I, I just want to acknowledge, a few of you came up to me afterwards and you said, thank you, Pastor, I needed to hear that. And, you know, I just want to tell you, sometimes when you have to encourage people, uh, to do something, you know, that's challenging. You get pushback never here. It's always a wonderful response. And, and some of you came and you were here five, ten minutes early, and, and you see why it's so important to do that. So others of you who haven't gotten there yet, we're praying for you, and we know that God will be faithful to help you. Well, I just want to say that this morning we're going to continue in our series of studies in the book of Revelation, and we pick it up in chapter 6 and verse 9. And in chapter 6 and verse 9... We've been looking at, ever since really chapter 4, where we saw a vision of heaven through John's eyes, and then chapter 5, where the Lamb of God began to open up the scroll and the seals, the seven seals that sealed that scroll, which represents the title deed for the earth, and really the opening of the scrolls represents the redemption of all creation. Now, we've gone through the first four seals last week, and now we pick it up in the fifth seal. And as each seal is opened in heaven, corresponding events take place on earth. Some of these events are not just one event, but a series of events. But all of it speaks to God redeeming the earth and the difficulties and the pain that the earth must experience for the earth to be redeemed. Paul wrote in Romans that all of creation groans, and so many times the scriptures, Jesus as well, describes this process which is not yet begun in some ways because these events are still yet future. He describes it as a woman in labor, and and it's a very apt and appropriate analogy because there's pain and difficulty leading up to the moment of joy when the Lord returns. And of course, the contractions or birth pains increase in both intensity and frequency until the child is born. And then, 
With that same analogy, there's joy because Christ will have come. But looking at it that way, we get to the fifth seal. And let's read together. We'll read uh, in chapter 6 and verse 9. We read this. Then when Jesus, when he had opened the fifth seal, I, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I think one of the difficult things to understand as a Christian is why God allows his children to suffer. And specifically, why the most faithful through the centuries have been persecuted and martyred, put to death for their faith. Have you ever stopped to think why that is? I I, I have to be honest, there are times in the flesh where I look at that and I think, that doesn't really seem fair to me. Why should the people who trust God the most give their life to show the world their faith? Well, that's what the word martyr means in Greek. It means witness. And God, in his wisdom and and foreknowledge, knows what's best. And so it's not for me to argue with God's wisdom. But there are times where, in the flesh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's why we trust God by faith. But having said that, the history of Christianity, the, the history of God's people, even going back into the Old Testament, is filled with examples, including Jesus, of people who gave their life for their faith. Now, what we do see here is that is a part of God's plan. And it better be because it happens quite often. It's happening today in our world. It's happened in the past. It will happen in even greater numbers in the future. So if it's not part of God's plan, well, then we're in trouble because it happens a lot. So one of the things we need to reconcile in our hearts is that this is part of God's plan. And that if it's part of God's plan, in the end it's good, even if in the process it's hard, difficult, and challenging. Amen? Amen? Life is challenging, but suffering and being persecuted and even put to death for your faith, that's very difficult to, to think through and understand and comprehend. As we look at the scripture today, the fifth seal's open. We, we've looked at the first four seals, which were the four horsemen of the apocalypse, and explain and describe the events that would take place within the first three and a half years of that period known as the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week. The events that take place after this seal take place in the second three and a half years, or half of the seven-year tribulation. This is really right about the middle when these things take place. And John saw the souls in heaven of the faithful martyrs under the altar in heaven. Now their souls were under the altar. And there's a reason for that because it shows that their sacrifice was for God. We are all called to make sacrifices for God. As God's children. Christ made the ultimate sacrifice, but Paul, Peter, all of the apostles... The saints throughout the centuries, saints today, in areas where the church is being openly persecuted, they make the ultimate sacrifice. Now, we are called to sacrifice maybe our comfort at times, maybe our popularity, maybe other difficulties, maybe a job, friends, family, maybe, maybe. That may change in our nation. 
Uh, we see it already that the, I can only describe it, describe it as the demon-possessed world in which we live, shows such hate and disregard and disrespect for people of faith. But specifically and especially, not just Jews, but Christians. Christians and Jews. And there's a reason for that, because even Jews acknowledge the true God, although they don't understand or comprehend that the Messiah has come in, the, in, in Jesus Christ. Christians and Jews are attacked by the world and have been throughout the centuries because there are people who, are quite honestly, are just influenced by the powers of darkness, and of course they hate God and his people. So we're engaged and involved in a war, a spiritual war, and sometimes we are the casualties, and yet those sacrifices are not in vain. God has worked through the centuries through people who've given everything, and then they become heroes of the faith. Now, in this particular church with the stained glass windows. On this side, you've probably noticed you have heroes from the Bible. On this side, you have a number of heroes through church history, and many of them are martyrs. Not all, but some are. And, and, you know, so we celebrate that sacrifice, but no one wants to die or suffer, but it happens. And these individuals under the altar, their souls, they were killed by their enemies for believing and obeying the word of God. So if you believe and obey the word of God, you are an enemy of the world. The world is your enemy. And the more you cozy up to it and try to be liked by it, the more apostate you will become. The the more you will betray the very truths that you embrace. So more than ever now in our world, you have to just understand. You have to delineate this in your head. We are not of this world. We are in this world, but we're not of it. It doesn't mean we hate the world, that is the people in the world, because Christ loves the world and died for it. But the world system that's run by Satan and those that submit to his will hate us. And we don't necessarily hate them, but we do hate evil. We do, and we hate the world system because of what it does to people. So as we see this, these individuals were killed specifically for maintaining their testimony in the face of death. I don't think anyone gets up in the morning and says, I'd like to be a martyr. But John heard the faithful martyrs call out to God. And what did they cry out for? And this gives me some peace because I find myself, though not a martyr and not even really persecuted, when I see injustice and suffering in this world, and I see my brothers and sisters throughout the world suffering and being put to death for their faith, I cry out on their behalf for justice. So, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, we don't want to do that. But the martyrs in heaven are crying out for God's justice to judge their murderers and avenge their blood. Now, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is God who will do the judging and the avenging, but it will happen. So much of this book shows that, and people say, oh, the book of Revelation has so much blood and guts. And Well, judgment has to come. He, he wouldn't be a loving God if he didn't love us and give his son to die for us, but he wouldn't be a just God if he didn't punish sin unrepented of. So understand, justice and judgment is something that as Christians we welcome, but we also cry out for mercy that those who have rejected him wouldn't continue to reject him. But if they continue to reject him, they will be judged. There is a hell, despite what some modern thinkers will tell you, there is a hell, and those that reject Christ go there. And so we see the judgment of God being cried out for by these 
martyrs, faithful martyrs, that John saw. They're given a white robe. They're told to wait. No one likes to wait, but they're told to wait a little while longer for their fellow servants, the other martyrs, who will die within the next three and a half years. They have to wait for them because God's judgment will come at the end of that seven-year period. Now, the white robes, we've talked about this before on numerous occasions, the white robes represent Christ's imputed or given righteousness to all is redeemed. It's what Christ gives to you. It's not something you earn. It's Christ's righteousness given to you. You wear it like a robe. You don't want to take it off, but you put it on because it's not really from you. It's from him. And that's the symbol. And, of course, their blood would be avenged after the martyrdom of all the faithful servants of God was completed. Now, Jesus also warned his disciples. We've been going back and forth between Matthew 24 and Revelation 6 because so much of what Jesus said in that chapter corresponds to what Jesus revealed in this chapter, which makes sense. The word of God is consistent. And he warned his disciples to expect persecution and even death shortly after the events he predicted. And so I'm going to turn to Matthew's gospel in chapter 24. And in verse 9, just read a little bit for you. This is what Jesus had to say about the events at this time in the history of God's people in the future, uh, the prophecy. He says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Well, that prophecy has been fulfilled. We see that in our world today. So much hate. And it always seems to be directed at God and his people. So you know where it comes from. Well, it goes on to say, And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And that's certainly been happening in our world. A lack of love and kindness. A coldness that inhabits the hearts of those that surrender their lives over to Satan and to demons. And they do ungodly, awful things. I'm sure you read the newspaper. I don't have to go through all the accounts, but even just in the last few days, people just opening fire on others. The hate that is required, the emptiness that's required in the mind and the heart and even the soul of a person that can do that is is just, it speaks of of a wickedness that isn't even within that person, but is even external to that person and inspired by Satan himself. And so the love of most will grow cold. Now, as we continue, it says, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And by the way, that doesn't mean you'll be spared death. That would be inconsistent with the context here. It means you'll be saved, not spared. Have you noticed that you're saved? Say amen. Have you noticed that you're not always spared? (laughs) Yeah, okay. So that's a different word. (laughs) And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So God gives us, or Jesus gives us, a little bit of an understanding as to why he allows persecution and martyrdom. Why? Well, we're told right there. It's about the preaching of the gospel. See, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But God so loves the world that he allows his children to suffer and even die for this one purpose, that others will see that the gospel is real and people who are willing to give their life for the gospel love the world so much that they don't consider their own lives of more value than sharing that truth. Try to, try to 
enter into this understanding with me this morning. If God wanted to go out of his way to show us that he loved us, he did by sending Jesus to die on the cross. But the Lord goes out of his way to show the the world here that he still loves them and wants them to repent by allowing us to be persecuted and put to death. Are you with me? It's the same message of God's love, except that we have the opportunity to suffer and even die in some cases for our faith because it is a testimony to the truth of the gospel message. If we recanted and just walked away the minute there was suffering or persecution or rejection, it wouldn't say much for what we believe in, would it? So God uses martyrdom, though he is not the author of martyrdom, he uses it to show the world his love is real and his people are real as well. And that helps us to understand what is a very difficult subject. But as I've read through that section, Jesus predicted that his disciples would be hated by all nations before the end would come. And indeed, they are and will continue to be hated. Uh, Mark's gospel records that Jesus' words telling us that they would stand before local councils, synagogues, governors, and kings, and that the Holy Spirit would speak through them when they were arrested and brought to trial. So when you see these things happening, it doesn't mean God isn't in control. It means he's totally in control and allowing these things to happen for his purposes. Now, in the last days, many of the Jews will suffer. I personally believe during this time the church has been raptured. Some believe it will happen before the seven years begin. Some believe it will happen before this begins, about the middle of that seven-year period. But I believe it will happen before this event. Uh, Regardless of your beliefs on that, Just understand, the Jews are going to suffer during this time period. God is going to allow that. Many of those who believe are going to have their fellow Jews reject God, and they're going to believe in these antichrists. There are two, sometimes called the two beasts or the beast and the false prophet. We'll talk more about them as we get to chapter 12. But there are two leaders that emerge during the seven-year time period, and many of the Jews are going to follow after them. And then they'll betray their own people that serve Christ. And they will be hunted down, those that believe in Christ, hunted down as God uses them to preach the gospel to the whole world. Now it seems that Israel is going to be unaffected by all of the beginning of these things, the birth pangs which we talked about last week, and the opening of the four seals. But when the fifth seal is open, all of that changes. Jewish believers in Christ will be martyred for their faith during this time period, the second three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. Now, Jesus also warned his disciples when this persecution would begin. And that's very helpful, isn't it, to know when something's going to begin? And we're told, as we continue in Matthew 24, and I'll just continue where I left off there in 24.15, Jesus goes on to say, So when you see in the holy place... That's in the temple. The abomination that causes desolation spoken of through the prophet Daniel. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea, notice in Judea, that's Israel, flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be for those uh, in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. So there is a time of tribulation talked about by Jesus in Matthew 24 that corresponds to Revelation 6. And understand that as we read this, 
The most important thing you can get from this is that Jesus is in control. Amen? And I know that's hard to understand, but he's in control just like he is today. And I think when we understand it that way, when we see things properly, we're not so freaked out when things seem to be going in the wrong direction in our nation or in our our culture. I mean, our culture is so wicked. I'm in my late 50s, and I can remember back even just a few decades when, okay, everyone in the world wasn't a Christian. I mean, that would have been an unrealistic expectation. But people were kinder. People weren't so cold. We, We didn't see the kind of evil that we see in our world today. Things are definitely getting worse. I know, you need me to tell you that. Watch the 11 o'clock news and you'll see, unfortunately, all types of awful crimes committed on an hourly basis. Despite what the media will try to tell you, it happens over and over again. Why is that? Well, it's because God's word is true. He said these things would happen and they're going to get worse right up until the point when he returns. After the desecration of the rebuilt temple, Three and a half years into the seven years of tribulation, so the midpoint, if you will, these things would begin to take place. The martyrdom will begin at that point. You see, the Antichrists are going to sign a covenant with Israel for seven years. Daniel tells us this in Daniel chapter 9, which is the reference here that that Jesus is uh, referring to. And many people have read that and thought, well, that was in the past. Well, if it was in the past, why is Jesus talking about it in the future? Because it is partially fulfilled in the past, but it will be completely fulfilled in the future. So this is still future, and these things haven't been fulfilled yet. And one of the things he goes on to say in Matthew 24, in verse 22, he says, If those days had not been cut short, by the way, cut short means they're only going to last about three and a half years. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, that is the chosen of God, those days will be shortened. So God in his mercy is only going to allow so much, and then he's going to judge the earth. And that's when he returns, which we'll talk about throughout this book, but especially in chapter 19. There's a lot of themes here, and I'm giving you sort of an overview so you can understand the individual particulars, but the larger theme is what's most important here. So Jesus warned when this would happen, that it would happen, and what the results would be. And so, as we see here, back in Revelation, chapter 6, the fifth seal represents the martyrdom and the persecution that will come on the earth at that time. Then let's get to the sixth seal. This is interesting. And it's not any more positive or encouraging if you're looking at it from that perspective. In fact, well, in some ways it is, because in in the fifth seal you see the believers suffering, and in the sixth seal you see those who have rejected Christ's suffering. And while I don't like to see anyone suffer, I'd rather see those that reject Christ suffer than those that love God. That's just me. I don't even say that's right. That's just me. I like to see, you've heard me say this before, I like to see the bad guys get it. But I suspect if you've ever watched any movie where the bad guys get it at the end and you cheer, you probably are like me. All right? And we'll leave it there. So as we get to verse 12... John writes, I watched as the lamb, he opened the sixth seal. And there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth, made of goat hair, the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. 
The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. It's a pretty severe earthquake. Then the kings of the earth and the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? See, this is the judgment that the martyrs of the, of the fifth seal were crying out for. It's the beginning of it, and it's a summary of all that we're going to talk about. Much of what we talk about going forward is, are, are the particulars of this seal. So this seal sort of summarizes the things that are going to happen, and then we're going to go over it and see the details as we go through the study of this book. But that pretty much sums it up. John saw a great earthquake happen on the earth when the sixth seal was open. Now, he, he describes this, that the sun turned black. Now, what that means is that the light was significantly impeded from hitting the earth or coming to the earth. And the moon turned red and the stars fell to the earth. He goes on to say the sky receded and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is a cataclysm of some significance. And as we'll find out later on, it doesn't happen all at once. There are several events that lead up to this point. These calamities are the summation of the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. The judgments we'll talk about in the future. But the sixth seal sort of represents all of them, if you will. Now, natural conditions and or things like nuclear weapons might account for these drastic changes on the earth. We simply don't know what will cause it. There are nuclear weapons which could create this on the earth. We know that all too well. But we also know that massive volcanoes and earthquakes can do this to our atmosphere without any help from mankind. But this earthquake seems to bring about most of the other calamities on the earth. So I suspect that these are natural conditions and not man-made. In fact, volcanic fallout would obscure the sun and filter its reflection off the moon's surface and create the exact conditions described by John in this vision. And of course, meteors, meteorites, asteroids, comets might easily pummel the earth as well. We're always talking about that in the news, right? Oh, there's this object the size of a, of a house, you know, spinning around our planet. And thankfully, it's only going to miss us by a couple of million miles. And when I hear that, I'm like, well, that's, no, I'm good with that. That's a couple million miles. I'm... But they consider that a close pass by. But w- what about when it actually hits us? And those things do happen, you know, not to that magnitude. Uh, we hear about these extinction level events. I want to assure you, that that will never happen on the earth. Many people will suffer and die during the tribulation, but when Christ comes again, he comes to an earth where people are alive. So we're not going to see an extinction-level event until Christ comes again, he rules and reigns for a thousand years, and, and then there is an event that takes place, and there's a new heaven and a new earth. But I get ahead of myself. The atmosphere will be obscured or destroyed even by the volcanic and meteoric fallout. That's what we're told here. Massive geological and topographical changes will certainly be the result, and that's what's described here. So this is actually pretty scientifically accurate. Without being a science textbook, the Bible describes things that science would prove or or describe to us should something like this happen. So John saw all mankind respond in this way. They take refuge in caves and underground shelters during these cataclysms. Now, I don't need to tell you, those of you who were alive during the 50s and 60s, do you remember bomb shelters? People would build these things in in their backyard. In fact, some people buy homes, right? 
and it's not in the plans, and they start excavating in the backyard. I thought, well, what's under the ground? They find out they have a bomb shelter. They didn't know. But this was kind of a popular thing for people to plan to take refuge underground should there be a nuclear uh, annihilation of sorts between Russia or the Soviet Union at that time and the United States. And of course, we all are familiar with movies like War Games and many movies where, you know, it goes to DEFCON level and then all of a sudden people are hiding and they move the president underground. So it's not hard for us to imagine that underground would be the way that you would try to survive an event like this. So even that makes sense, right? And John reveals that that's exactly what will happen, clearly. These, are, these judgments will affect the earth's rulers. I'm kind of okay with that because most of them are evil anyway, but the rich, the powerful, and slaves and free men, basically everyone. It's going to affect everyone. The only place of safety will be found underground, and they will prefer death to God's earthly wrath and the wrath of the Lamb of God. Isn't it something that when someone rejects Christ, one of the things that happens in their heart is they become almost insane because rather than repent, they would rather die. Now, think that through with me. They acknowledge there's a God, they reject that God, and they would rather die than repent. What do they think is going to happen after they die? They're going to stand before the great white throne judgment talked about in Revelation 20. It doesn't get better from here. And isn't it amazing how people, when they reject the gospel, they start to be completely irrational. The people in our world, okay, how can I say this? The people that are in our world right now who have rejected the gospel and reject Christ are doing all sorts of things to hide from God. They really are. And one of the things we see, they, they, they want the, the rocks to fall on them, the mountains to cover them, so they won't experience the judgment of God, the wrath of the Lamb and of God. And I understand that because they think that if they hide in the mountain, they can avoid God's wrath. But you can't do that because eventually you have to stand before God. But what people do today, because we're not living in this time period yet, They look at the world, they see there is an answer in Jesus Christ, they reject that, and then they begin not so much to hide underground, but to do anything they can to hide themselves from God. You will find that there are people who are serving God and people that are hiding from God. The only other category in the world are those who haven't heard the gospel. But if you've heard the gospel and you've rejected it, then you're hiding from God, and I'm going to give you a couple of ways in which people think they can hide from God. Drugs and alcohol. Why do you think people abuse substances? Because, oh, the world is so difficult, so they make it more difficult? I mean, is there anyone who actually believes that drugs and alcohol will make your life better? Even the people that abuse those things don't do that. They, they know better. They, they know that what they're doing is wrong. They do it anyway. But why? Because ultimately, what they need to do, and I'm not, you know, diminishing or... or or looking at uh, an addiction and saying, oh, you know, you have a choice. You do have a choice, but it's a difficult choice once you become addicted to these substances. But still, people are trying to hide from God. And they may not even realize it, but I look at our world, I look at our nation, the fentanyl crisis. I want you to think this through as a thinking, rational Christian. I want you to think this through. You know it's poison. You know it will kill you. And so you buy it and you take it anyway. 
What part of that even remotely sounds sane to you? Well, that's because it's not. It's an attempt at hiding from God. There are many other ways in this world in which we try to hide from God, throw ourselves into all types of pleasure. But I think the most obvious to me in our world today, and people are dying by the thousands every day, I believe. And sometimes they'll say, oh, they took their own life. And that may be accurate because their actions led to their death. But a lot of times it's people trying to escape God. And so they do something like this, either slowly over time with alcohol or very quickly with a a pill that has enough poison to kill several people. And we wonder why. No one seems to be willing in the world, at least or in the media, to acknowledge the reason why. To me, it's a much simpler answer. If you reject Christ and his love, you have to hide from that love. And these are the types of things that we see people doing in our world today that they do to hide from Christ because they've rejected Christ. Now, you're here this morning, which means you haven't rejected Christ, and you love Christ, and you know better And maybe still, there are struggles in our lives from our past where we still, these substances still, they still call out to us. That's a little different. But still, it's similar in that when we engage in behavior that's contrary to God's word and we openly sin, what we're really saying is, I don't want God in my life at this moment. And as Christians, it's vitally important that you understand when you do those things, any sin for that matter, you're hiding from God. Just don't do it. When you feel that way, come to God, draw near to God. You know, it's amazing. I can start to get, if I just look at the news and even, you know, situations around me and my family and within my neighborhood, I I look and I say, I, I can get depressed. But then I get into God's word and I begin to study and it gives me the proper perspective. You have to do things that are healthy and being in God's word is the healthiest of all being in fellowship, being in church, being in a place where you can be built up, that's what's going to help you to realize that stuff is insanity. Insanity. So please understand, we see these people in the future hiding from God, but people today, even Christians, are trying to hide from God through sin. And we don't want to embrace that way of life as Christians. So this is a lot to take in, but it it, it still rings true today. People will hide from God. They will prefer death to the wrath of God. And they will know that these events are the result of God's wrath in the future, but there's, and they're still going to bow before him because every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, Jesus revealed to his disciples the signs that would precede his coming in that same chapter in Matthew 24. And as I look at that, I realize, going back to where we left off, We'll actually back up to verse 21. We read this before, but we'll read it again. For then there will be great distress, unequal from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. And if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened again to three and a half years. And at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. And see, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, 
even in the West, so will the coming of the Son of Man. In other words, you're not going to miss it. It's not going to be something that people wonder about. Was that the return of Christ? No, no, you're not going to ask that question. In fact, he uses a picture. He says, uh, wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Sometimes I'm driving up on Route 287. I'll see a number of vultures or carrion birds circling, and it tells me that somewhere on the ground there is a dead carcass. He uses that analogy. It seems like a weird analogy, but it's something you see all the time uh, in certain parts of the world, especially more rural areas. But when you see that, it tells you that something is happening. It's a symbol to show us when Christ comes again, it's going to be very obvious in the air that he's returned. And we'll see why when we get to Revelation 19. If you like, you can read ahead. But here we read that immediately after the distress of those days, notice what Christ says, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Does that sound familiar? It should. It's the same Jesus, but giving a vision of it to John and speaking to his disciples in Matthew 24. But he says the exact same thing. So there are some that don't like this particular approach to studying the book of Revelation. And yet I would argue, well, Christ spelled it out for us. And it matches precisely this interpretation of the book of Revelation. Chances are that that's a pretty safe interpretation, right? Jesus is a a great authority to quote. Amen? We know we can trust him. Amen? Amen. Okay. Here he predicted that there will be signs in the heavens. That's the point. Immediately following the time of great distress. And he predicted the worst time of distress that the world has ever seen or would see. Again, the light of the sun and the moon will be obscured from you. The the, the earth will be bombarded with objects falling from space. Okay. Uh, The course of the sun, the moon, and the planets and the stars will be altered. Things are going to change. And we know from Luke's gospel... Jesus tells us in Luke's gospel that nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and the tossing of the sea. Uh, This, by the way, would be considered real climate change. No matter how much money they spend, nothing is going to prevent this. So that's why I wouldn't waste a single dollar on trying to uh, lower the temperature of the earth, because it doesn't look like it's going to make much of a difference anyway. Men will faint from terror. They're going to be apprehensive of what's coming on the world. That's what we're told in Luke's gospel. And by the way, that's not the only place in scripture you'll find those events described. You know, Revelation and Matthew, Isaiah and Joel also warned about the distress of those days in their prophecies. So this is a consistent theme. Now, right now, I want to just hit the pause button and say, don't be depressed. Because I know when we read these things and we hear about all this disaster and cataclysm, you have a tendency to stop and say, well, what hope is there for the world? Really? You know the hope of the world. It's in Christ. And even if we give our lives to get that message out, it's what happens after we leave this world that is our great hope in Christ. Amen? Amen. See, that's the beauty of this book. It reminds you of what's really important. The other day I was watching the news and, you know, the government's going to try to figure out how they can raid our pension plans as usual, you know, to pay for trying to bring uh, the climate it to some order, I don't know, just ridiculous, right? They want to try to do that stuff. And I get mad and I think to myself, what am I doing? Put my treasure in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy. You know what I mean? Wait a minute, well, am I really focused on that? If I focus on that, I'm going to be a very depressed person. And I might even begin to resent God. I might even try to hide from God. So what I do is stay in the word of God and remind myself of the truth 
that Christ is coming again to bring judgment on the earth. And that judgment is not for me. It's not for you. It's for the world that rejects him. We are going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years and forever be with the Lord. Amen? That beats my pension plan just a little. All right? No 401k has anything to offer that could amount to that type of glory. So I get excited because there is finally going to come a day when they'll get theirs. <laughs> when the world will finally be held accountable for the wickedness. And you think, well, Pastor Tim, you sound a little blood, bloodthirsty. It's not so much that. I'm tired of reading the stories of women and children being abused. I'm tired of reading the stories of people doing all types of things to others that can only be described as the actions of an animal. And I really want it to stop. And I do want those individuals to be held accountable, not just let out the next day to do it again. And so as I think about these things, it does encourage me, but I also realize these are going to be dark days. So things do have to get worse before they get better. They do. They do. And they will. So all of this tells us that Jesus revealed the same signs. Now, finally, I want to leave you with this. Jesus warned his disciples about the time of God's earthly wrath. He told them that it would happen. Now, he didn't try to scare them because they're not going to be subjected to God's wrath. And neither are you. If you're in Christ, you will never experience the wrath of the Lamb. I want to be clear. Even a lot. And and I venture a guess that most of us would look at our spiritual lives and say, well, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as Lot. Lot was living in Sodom. And he seemed kind of comfortable there. But you know, the angels told Lot and his family that they couldn't destroy the cities of the plains until he was taken out. And the scriptures also reveal Lot and describe him in this way, righteous Lot. See, the truth is, and Abraham knew this when he discussed this with God on the plains of memory, he said, will you judge the righteous with the wicked? God will never judge the righteous. By the way, it's like that robe. The righteousness in Christ. Understand, your righteousness, as Isaiah says, is as filthy rags, but Christ's righteousness is likened unto a white robe. You're wearing that white robe today in Christ. You never, ever, ever, ever have to worry about suffering the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And that is because Christ took on himself on the cross the judgment that we deserved. That's what we will celebrate next week during communion, which we celebrate every month. The truth that Christ died for us, and because he died for us, we will no longer be judged for sin. Can I hear an amen? Now, here's the thing. That's good news. Actually, that's very good news. That's wonderful news. And that should encourage you today, because there are people that die in their trespasses and in their sins, only to go to a place of torment, known in the Hebrew as Sheol, or in the Greek as Hades, only to find themselves at the end of time raised up in their resurrected bodies, equipped to experience the senses of all eternity, to be cast into the lake of fire. That's no hope at all. That's called death. That's called eternal death. Separation from Christ's love for all eternity. So, the choice we make in this world for Christ or rejection of Christ matters a great deal because it depends on that decision whether or not you and I, we will receive and experience the judgment of God. So when we say we're saved, what are we saved from? Well, we're saved from the judgment of God, but we're saved for eternity with Christ. So that phrase saved means a lot to me. 
And while these are dark things to think about, because they lead to the moment where things are set right, to me, I know I might sound a little weird, they're actually a little encouraging. I don't focus on the negative. I focus on the positive outcome, the glorious outcome of Christ's return. I'm going to look just now at the end of Matthew 24, continue where we left off. Christ says, at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. This is kind of the encouraging part. (laughs) And all the nations of the earth will what? Celebrate? No, mourn. Why? Because they rejected him. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect. Notice, not his church, but his elect. From the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. And now learn the lesson from the fig tree. It's interesting, the fig tree is mentioned here. Fig tree is also mentioned briefly in Revelation 6. Why? Well, fig trees were very common. Some people believe it kind of represents Israel. Here it's more about the analogy of when he said, like, the fig tree is shaken and the figs fall. That's what happens if you've ever owned a fig tree. And that's describing the meteors and the things that would come out of the sky, the asteroids. But... Here, he's just making the point that, well, I'll read it for you. Here's the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Now, we don't measure summer by the fig tree here. We don't do that here. You might say certain flowers bloom in the spring right before the summer. So when you see them bloom, like I think about the irises that bloom over there in Montclair at the Presby Garden. Uh, We always go over there around May, and depending on the weather, Around Mother's Day, you can, you can go over there and see them. When I see that, I know that summer's near. Because within a couple of weeks, we're going to be in summer. So, kind of the same idea. Don't over-spiritualize it. It's actually pretty practical. As soon as the twigs of the fig tree get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer's near. Even so, and here's the analogy. So when you see all these things, what things? All the things we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes. When you see all these things you know that it is near, right at the door. See, that's the encouragement. That when you see these things happening, you know you're within the last seven years of Christ's return. So yes, that is encouraging. I tell you the truth, this generation, what generation? The generation of people who were alive during those seven years. Some people have suggested that the generation that saw Israel become a nation or somehow the generation he's talking to here, that's contrived, that's not even contextually accurate. He says, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass until all, or pass away, until all these things have happened, past tense. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So we end on a high note because you see, Jesus will return after these calamities, and the Jews will be gathered to their Messiah. The opening of the seven seals announces the coming king who will redeem the earth. I've, I've mentioned this already. With the opening of each seal, the day draws nearer to his return. This is the lesson of the fig tree. All of these events will take place within those three and a half years, the events that we discussed today. Within the three and a half years of Christ's return. Your focus better be on that. John ends the book by saying, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, thank you. The great hope, the blessed hope of your appearing is what we hold on to, hang on to, cling to in these dark days. And so the the one solace that we do have is the darker things become, we know the light will come soon. 
And so, Lord, we're grateful for your promises, and we believe in them, we trust in them, and we ask in the name of Jesus that you would help us to trust you during these dark days, knowing that when your wrath is poured out on the earth, we will not be recipients of your wrath. For you do not judge the righteous with the wicked. O Lord, may your gospel message fill our hearts with hope and joy, And bring hope and joy to those that may be hearing it but are still rejecting your love. We ask that you would do these things for your glory and for our salvation in Jesus' precious name. Amen.